All right, turn to Revelation chapter 16. Revelation 16. As we come nearer to the conclusion of the judgments section of the book of Revelation, today we encounter the seven bowl judgments. These are the final judgments, and with them the wrath of God is finished against Israel for their rejection of Jesus. In this chapter, we also see the battle of Armageddon. Just like a few other things we've seen in the book of Revelation, this is something that a lot of books have been written about and movies have been made about, etc. But there's surprisingly little that John actually says about Armageddon. One of the big themes that we'll see in this text, though, the purpose for which John is writing, is to encourage people with God's sovereignty. Now, last Sunday at Church in the Park, uh, Seth shared with us the story of Joseph. And Joseph's life is an illustration of the sovereignty of God at work in the life of a believer. Even what looks bad, in the end, Joseph says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. You see, the doctrine of the sovereignty of God is intensely practical. It's not just something that you find in a theology textbook. No, it's a truth that God gives us to live by. Belief in the sovereignty of God allows the Christian to face all kinds of circumstances with confidence and hope, knowing that God is in control, that he's good, that he's using this for our good and for his glory. So as John writes the book of Revelation, his purpose is to encourage Christians, yes, things look bad, yes, there's more suffering coming, But this is all part of God's plan, and in the uncertain times in which we live today, that's a message we need to hear. All right, Revelation chapter 16, follow along as I read. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, trust, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw, coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are demonic spirits, performing signs, 
who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found, and great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. Well, I'd like to go through this passage and explain each bold judgment briefly, and then we'll go back and talk about the significance of what we're seeing here, what John wants his readers to understand, and what difference it makes for us today. But before we do that, we'll start by pointing out three things just about the chapter in general. And those three things are the voice, the bowls themselves, and the imagery that John uses. So first, notice that in verse 1, these angels with these bold judgments are sent out by a voice from the temple. Now, if you remember back to the end of chapter 15, the temple was filled with smoke that signified the presence of God, and no one could enter. So this voice must be the voice of God himself. God is sending these judgments out. The second thing to take note of is the bowls. Why bowls? Well, these are bowls like the bowls in the tabernacle and the temple. In other words, they're used as part of carrying out the sacrifices and the offerings, part of worship. Three main things that the bowls were used for. First, they're used for drink offerings. So beer or wine that serves as God's drink, and it was sometimes drunk by the priests as part of how God provided for them too. Second, a second use for the bowls was to carry things like incense or grain or flour that was to be used for sacrifices. And we've already seen this in the book of Revelation. We have golden bowls full of incense, which is the prayers of the saints. And a third use for the bowls is to carry blood or oil for anointing or cleansing. The oil might be carried and used to anoint people or priests or the tabernacle buildings themselves or the furniture. And the blood from the sacrifices, you know, when the animal was, was actually killed, the blood was caught in a bowl and then the bowl was carried to the place where it was offered or sprinkled on something or maybe splashed out against the base of the altar. So the bowls are used for various aspects of worship. So worship has been offered to God, and now that worship is essentially continuing because what God is doing in response is going to bring him glory, even though now he's the one instigating what's happening with the bowls. And then the last thing I want you to notice before we look at each bowl judgment individually is this. The bowls are described in language that connects them to the trumpet judgments from earlier in the book and connects them to the plagues in Egypt during the Exodus. Now, 
the purpose of pointing this out, because this is going to, I'm going to go through a kind of a chart real quick for you. It's, it's so that we can get the big picture of what John is communicating. You don't need to worry about the details, but I just want you to have the sense of what he's doing, okay? So the first bowl is judgment on the land, and it brings sores on the people. In the trumpet judgments, there was judgment on the land. A third of the earth, the trees and the grass were burned. And then the sixth plague in Egypt was boils. So you can see the bowl is connected to both trumpet judgments and plagues. The second bowl is judgment on the sea, and the sea becomes blood. Well, the trumpet judgments brought judgment on the sea. A third of the sea became blood. A third of the sea creatures died. A third of the ships were destroyed. And we know that the first plague in Egypt was that water turned to blood. The third bowl judgment is judgment on rivers and springs, and they too become blood. The trumpet judgments also fell on rivers and springs, and a third of them became wormwood. And it connects us again to the first plague in Egypt, where the water turned to blood. The fourth bowl is judgment on the sun, causing it to scorch. The trumpet judgments caused a third of the sun, moon, and stars to be darkened. And the ninth plague in Egypt was darkness on the land. So we have the connection of sun and darkness through there. The fifth bowl is judgment on the throne of the beast, causing darkness. The trumpet judgments brought demon locusts to torment men. And remember, they serve the beast. Okay. And that connects us to the eighth plague in Egypt, which was locusts, along with the ninth plague of darkness again. The sixth bowl is judgment on the Euphrates River, drying it up and making way for the invasion of foreign kings. It's also the invasion of frog demons, and it's the battle of Armageddon. Well, in the trumpet judgments, an army from the east kills a third of mankind. And the second plague in Egypt was the invasion of frogs from the river. And then finally, the seventh bowl is judgment on the air, bringing storm, earthquake, hail. The trumpets brought voices and storm and earthquake and hail. And the seventh plague in Egypt was hail. Now, it's not important that you remember all those details. The point is just to realize what John is doing. He connects the bowls to the trumpet judgments. But where the trumpet judgments were limited a third of the land, a third of the ships, a third of the stars. Now the judgment is complete. It's total. This, as we saw in chapter 15, is the final judgment on Israel. But he's also connecting them to the plagues in Egypt. And that makes quite a statement too. Because in Egypt, the plagues were falling on the Gentile enemies of God and of Israel. But now, these plagues are falling on Israel itself. Israel has taken the place of Egypt as the enemy of God. By rejecting Jesus, they have become the pagan enemies and they will face God's wrath accordingly. So that's the big picture. Now let's take a look at each bowl judgment individually. All right, so the first bowl is verse two. It's painful sores or boils on everyone who has the mark of the beast, everyone who's loyal to the beast. Everyone who opposes the lamb, Jesus. And remember, everyone's in one of those two camps. Either you submit to Jesus or you're serving the beast. We've already seen the connections to the plagues in Egypt, but this is a good point to remind us of something that we've seen a number of times before already in this book. The, these plagues are coming on Israel just as God promised they would. 
in Deuteronomy 28, God told Israel what would happen if they disobeyed him and didn't repent of their sin. Just to pull out two verses out of it. The Lord will strike you with the boils of Egypt and with tumors and scabs and itch of which you cannot be healed. The Lord will strike you on the knees and on the legs with grievous boils of which you cannot be healed from the sole of your foot to the crown of your head. So what's happening to Israel here in Revelation 16, the, essentially the, the new version of the plagues, is exactly what God said would happen if they persisted in their rejection of him. The second bowl, then, is verse 3. And the sea becomes like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing in it died. So this is not just becoming like blood. It's the clotted, putrefying blood of a dead body. The point is that Israel is dead. This is the end for Israel. And this is appropriate because in the Old Testament law, corpses were unclean. Israel is dead. They're unclean. They're being cast out. The third bowl is in verses 4 through 7. Here, the rivers and springs are turned to blood. Now, normally, in, in the Bible, running water, living water, is a blessing to God's people. But now God turns this to a curse on Israel. This judgment comes with an explanation. It has a reason for it. It says, you brought these judgments because they have shed the blood of saints and prophets. Well, who was it that shed the blood of saints and prophets? It was Israel. Listen to what Jesus says in Luke 11. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. That's what Jesus says. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary, yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Over and over, Israel rejected God's prophets. And now that the greatest prophet, the Son of God himself, has come, Israel has rejected even him. And so this generation that rejected Jesus will face God's final judgment against the nation. And God's judgment here is according to the law. It's the principle of lex talionis, an eye for an eye. Look at verse 6. They've shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And then the altar itself joins in by proclaiming that God's judgments are true and just. Why the altar? Well, because that's where the souls of the martyred saints have been waiting, crying out for God to bring justice. The four living creatures of the 24 elders, remember, have the golden bowls full of incense, which are prayers of the saints. So picture it, the bowls carried the prayers of the martyred saints to the altar where they were offered to God, and now God is responding by taking those bowls and filling them with his judgment and wrath and pouring it out on their enemies. The fourth bowl is verses 8 and 9. The sun here scorches the people of the land. This is the reversal of an old covenant blessing again. 
when God was with his people, for instance, in the cloud, he said that he would protect them from the sun. He would be their shade. Let me just give you one example out of many times that that kind of language is used. This is Psalm 121. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. But now that's reversed because the people have broken the covenant and rejected God. And notice too what this says about God. In verse 8, the sun was allowed to scorch the people with fire. God allowed it. Verse 9, God had power over the plagues. And that's important for us to remember, especially when the world around us seems to be spinning out of control. Here's how St. Augustine wrote about it. He says, the whole creation is governed by its creator, from whom and by whom and in whom it was founded and established. And thus, the will of God is the first and supreme cause of all corporal appearances and motions. For nothing happens in the visible and sensible sphere which is not ordered or permitted from the inner, invisible, and intelligible court of the Most High Emperor, God. In this vast and illimitable commonwealth of the whole creation, according to the inexpressible justice of his rewards and punishment, graces and retributions. St. Augustine is saying, God's sovereignty is at work in everything you see around you. But notice too, what the response of the people under the curse is. They curse the name of God and they did not repent and give him glory. Just like Pharaoh, they hardened their hearts. They refused to bow the knee to God. And since they've become like Egypt, they face judgment like Egypt. The fifth bowl then is verses 10 and 11. And this is darkness and it's poured out on the throne of the beast. Uh, This is probably talking about the false prophet since it is Israel that is the target of all these bowl judgments. And so remember the false prophet represents the religious leadership of Israel. However, since the other nations throughout the Roman Empire are also involved in the judgment that God is bringing, it's possible that it's just kind of talking about the general upheaval in the Roman Empire that came during these years, all of which contributed to the attack and destruction of Israel. And again, we see that despite the judgments of God, the people refuse to repent. They persist in their rejection of Jesus. The sixth bowl judgment comes in verses 12 to 16. It begins with judgment being poured out on the river Euphrates. So this is the northeastern border of Israel. And historically, this is where many of Israel's enemies have attacked from. Drying up the river makes it possible for the armies to attack more easily. And as we saw several chapters before, some of the Roman army and some of their Gentile allies attacked and advanced on Jerusalem from that very position, from the northeast corner where the Euphrates forms the border of Israel. Then three unclean demonic spirits like frogs come from the mouths of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. You could say that this is the unholy trinity, okay, these three. They perform signs and the effect is that the nations are gathered for war against Israel. And you get the sense from the text that it is one great climactic battle. It's the great day of God the Almighty. And that phrase, God the Almighty, is God of hosts 
We could translate it Lord of Armies. It's the great day of battle, the day of the Lord of Armies. It is Armageddon. The warning in verse 15 to stay awake has connections with the temple. There were those who were on watch in the temple who were supposed to guard it at night. Let me ask the kids. Have you ever been at a point where you're supposed to be paying attention? Maybe you're, if you're do, doing school at home, your mom has said, pay attention. If you're doing school at school, your teacher has told you that it's time to be paying attention and you get caught off guard because you weren't paying attention. Well, the temple in Jerusalem had guards that were supposed to guard it at night. And those guards are supposed to be paying attention. And there's one guard whose job it is to make sure that all the other guards are paying attention. And so all he does is he goes around and he makes sure that they're all awake and alert. Now, the first time that he finds one of them dozing, he beats them. The second time that he finds that same person dozing, he burns their clothes. So now they're left naked. So that's what is in view here when the warning is given to stay awake so that you're not found naked and ashamed. The warning is that Jesus is coming. Stay awake and prepare the right way, which would be repent. If not, you'll be put to shame when Jesus arrives in judgment. And then verse 16 tells us that the kings assemble for battle at the place that is called Armageddon. The battle of Armageddon has become a kind of popular expression for the end of the world. It's very popular in end times literature and movies. Uh, in 1998, there was a Bruce Willis movie titled Armageddon, which was about a meteor that threatened uh, to destroy the planet. You know, it's the end of the world, that whole deal. Well, it's interesting because this verse is the only place in the Bible that Armageddon is mentioned. This gathering of armies is referred to here as taking place at a site called Armageddon. But here's the problem. There is no such place. The word Armageddon is a compound word. The two parts in Hebrew are Har and Megiddo. Har means mountain. Megiddo is a real place. It's in the Jezreel Valley in Israel. Megiddo is not a mountain. It's a valley. But, and here's the key, it's the place where a number of important battles took place in the Old Testament. So Joshua won a battle at Megiddo. Deborah defeated the kings of Canaan at Megiddo. King Ahaziah, the grandson of wicked King Ahab, died in battle at Megiddo. And Probably the biggest battle, the one that was most important for Israel's history, was a battle between King Josiah and Pharaoh Necho of Egypt. And Josiah was killed there. And from that point on, Judah got worse and worse, falling away from the Lord. So Megiddo, because that last battle was so significant, the, the term Megiddo became proverbial for defeat and destruction. It would be like Gettysburg was for the Confederacy. It would be like Waterloo for Napoleon. It's a place where a powerful army met its doom. Now, in Zechariah chapter 12, God says that those who have pierced the sun will weep, they'll mourn and they'll weep bitterly because of him. Now remember, 
We've already seen in the book of Revelation those who pierced him, talking about the Jews. Okay, Now listen to what Zechariah says. Zechariah says, In that day there will be great mourning in Jerusalem, like the mourning of Hadad-Rimmon in the plain of Megiddo. So Zechariah connects Jerusalem and the mourning and weeping that comes because they've pierced the Son of God to Megiddo, which is actually in the Valley of Jezreel. Okay? So when John calls the place Har-Megeddon, the mountain of Megiddo, what he's doing is he's combining two different images, Megiddo and Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a mountain, right? Jerusalem's on a mountain. Megiddo is a place of great military defeats. And so the kings of the earth will gather and come against Jerusalem and Israel will face a terrible and final defeat at Jerusalem. So it's fitting that John refers to the mountain of Jerusalem as Mount Megiddo, Har-Megeddon, Armageddon. So we're not looking into the future for a battle of Armageddon, some worldwide gathering of armies someday. Armageddon happened in AD 70 at Jerusalem. Now the seventh bowl. This is verses 17 to 21. The chapter finishes in these verses with the seventh bowl judgment, and this judgment is poured out into the air. There are weather-related judgments that result. Lightning, thunder, earthquake, hail. And once this happens, a voice comes from the throne and from the temple saying, it is done. Now in Greek, that's a one-word exclamation. A lot like when Jesus was on the cross, he cries out, tetelestai, it is finished. Here, it's the judgments that are now complete. They're final. And the great city, or Babylon the Great, is split into three parts, and it drinks the cup of the wine of the fury of God's wrath. Now, the great city, Babylon, is Jerusalem. I mentioned that once previously, and again, today, I'm just going to say, take my word for it for now. When we get to chapter 17, we will see why Jerusalem is called Babylon. And the language here is the kind of language that shows up when there's a divine covenant, either beginning or ending. It's like what happened at Mount Sinai. Lightning, thunder, earthquake. And that's appropriate because we are witnessing the final passing away of the old covenant. The full establishment of the new covenant. Israel is done away with. And the church, the new Israel, is established as the people of God, the bride of the Lamb. Now, here's what John's doing. When John says that the city of Jerusalem is split into three parts, he's picking up something that the prophet Ezekiel said. In Ezekiel 5, God told Ezekiel to shave his head and take the hair and divide it into three parts. You, you would have hated to be an Old Testament prophet because God would come and tell you, here's what I want you to do. And it was often just some bizarre, strange thing. So Ezekiel shaves his head. He's got all of his hair. He divides it into three parts. One part gets burned in a fire at the center of the city of Jerusalem. A second part gets carried all around the city being struck with a sword. And then the third part 
is scattered to the wind. And then the Lord explains why he had Ezekiel do this. And here's the explanation. God says, this is Jerusalem. In other words, this, this illustration of the hair that I've just given, this is Jerusalem. I have set her in the center of the nations with countries all around her, and she has rebelled against my rules by doing wickedness more than the nations and against my statutes more than the countries all around her. For they have rejected my rules and have not walked in my statutes. God's saying Israel is worse than the other nations, even though they have my law. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you are more turbulent than the nations that are all around you and have not walked in my statutes or obeyed my rules and have not even acted according to the rules of the nations that are around you, your morality doesn't even measure up to their standards, God is saying. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I, even I, am against you and I will execute judgments in your midst in the sight of the nations. And it continues on from there. So John picks up this idea of judgment against Jerusalem and describes what's about to happen. And in fact, the Jews in the city of Jerusalem did divide into three factions. And those three factions fought against each other and largely destroyed each other before the Romans ever even got into the city. The city, Babylon, Jerusalem, is made to drink the cup of God's wrath. Remember, we're talking about bowls that carry the drink offering, so it's appropriate that they drink here the wrath of God. And the text says that the islands fled away and there were no mountains to be found. Well, think about islands and mountains for a minute. An island is an escape from the dangers of the sea. And a mountain is a place to flee and hide when danger comes. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 24. When all this stuff happens, flee to the mountains in Judah. But now, there are no islands or mountains left to flee to. There's nowhere to hide from God's wrath. That's the point. Then, a hundred pound hailstones fall on the city. Ezekiel had said in Ezekiel chapter 13 that what the false prophets in Jerusalem was, were doing would bring God's judgment by hailstones. And when Josephus, the Roman historian, describes what happened in Jerusalem in AD 70, he describes these great stone missiles that the Roman army flung into the city with their catapults. Here's how he describes it. He says these engines that all the legions had ready prepared for them were admirably contrived, but still more extraordinary ones belonged to the 10th legion. Those that threw darts and those that threw stones were more forcible and larger than the rest, by which they not only repelled the excursions of the Jews, but drove away, drove those away that were upon the walls also. Now, the stones that were cast were of the weight of a talent and were carried two furlongs and farther. The blow they gave was in no way to be sustained, not only by those that stood first in the way, but by those that were beyond them for a great space. As for the Jews, they at first watched the coming of the stone, for it was of a white color, and they and could therefore not only be perceived by the great noise it made, but could be seen also before it came by its brightness. So the, the, the Romans start chucking the stones in, and it's doing all kinds of damage. And then the Jews realize, okay, these things are white and we can see them a long ways off and we can kind of clear out before they hit. 
Accordingly, the watchmen that sat on the towers gave them notice when the engine was let go and the stone came from it, and they cried aloud in their own country's language, The stone cometh. Here comes the stone. And what's interesting to note is that the Hebrew words for stone and sun are very close. Stone is eben and sun is ben. So while the Jews are shouting, here comes the stone, it's very likely that what most everyone was hearing is here comes the sun, S-O-N. And that's exactly what's happening. This is the coming of the son of man in judgment on Jerusalem because they've rejected and murdered him. All right. So that's a brief walk through all of the bold judgments. And there's a lot of important things for us to take notice of in this passage, but I'm just going to give you one thing to hang on to this morning, one main doctrine, and here's what it is. Because God is absolutely in control, his people should be encouraged and confident. Because God is absolutely in control, his people should be encouraged and confident. Now, the first part of that statement is that God is absolutely in control. Is that true? Is God completely in control? Well, the Bible teaches us that God is sovereign. He's completely in control. Let me just give you one example. This is Jeremiah praying, Jeremiah 32, 17. Ah, Lord God, It is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Nothing is too hard for you. Now, there are things that God cannot do, but there are things that he cannot do because of his nature, not because he doesn't have the power. God can't sin. God can't make laws that are unjust. God can't change his nature. He can't change his decrees or his purpose. Baptist theologian James P. Boyce explains it this way. He says, if it be asked why he can do none of these things, the answer is because his own nature is to him the law of what he does as well as of what he wills and what he is. He's not just and holy because he wills to be so but he wills to be just and holy because he is so. His will does not make his nature, but his nature controls his will. So God is absolutely in control even when we don't understand, and what he does is always perfectly consistent with his nature. So the first part of the doctrine this morning is that God is absolutely in control. Now the second and third parts of the statement tell us what use this truth is to us. How does it help us? Well, first, we should be encouraged by it. And second, we should be confident because of it. Okay, so how should the fact that God is in control encourage us? Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 6. These should be encouraging words. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, 
by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life. And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. When you start to worry, remember that God is in control. That should be an encouragement to you. B.B. Warfield said it this way. He said, a firm faith in the universal providence of God is the solution of all earthly troubles. A firm faith in the universal providence of God is the solution of all earthly troubles. Well, we've said that because God is absolutely in control, his people should be encouraged and confident. Why confident? Psalm 31 says, But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. The psalmist had confidence for life because of God's control. He trusted God. He understood his own life in the context of God's sovereignty. My times are in your hand. Nothing will come to me outside of your will. I trust you. Confidence. The authors of the Heidelberg Catechism do a good job of expressing this. They understood the value of this confidence for the Christian. This is question 28. What does it benefit us to know that God has created all things and still upholds them by his providence? What, what good is that to us? What use is that for our lives? And here's their answer. We can be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and with a view to the future, we can have a firm confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature shall separate us from his love, for all creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will they cannot so much as move. I don't know if you ever find yourself paralyzed by fear. When I was younger, heights did not bother me at all. But as I've gotten older, that has changed. Uh, when Luke and I went up to the Adirondack Mountains a couple years ago, we did a ropes course that went back and forth across a small canyon uh, over a river. Nothing terribly dramatic, but it was a struggle for me to start out, take those first couple of steps out on that rope. And the same thing can be true in life. We can be paralyzed by fear or anxiety. We, we don't move ahead with a decision because of what might go wrong. We don't take steps to be involved in ministry because we're fearful. We don't speak to our neighbor or coworker or friend about the truth of the Bible because we're afraid of how they may respond. But seeing the certainty of God's justice and providence in Revelation 16 should help us to respond in confidence. 
We look at the world around us and think that, well, there's no way God could turn things around. The nations will never come to him. Our own country will never again honor God. Well, we don't know the future of our nation, but we do know two things that are really important here. First, God says that the nations will come to worship him. It will happen. It may take another couple thousand years, but it will happen. And second, God has given us a commission, a calling. Because all authority has been given to Christ, we are to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that Jesus commanded. So we have work to do. Jesus doesn't promise that we will get to see the results, but he does command us to carry out the work. I recently heard a story that I think is a good illustration of how we as Christians should be thinking about building Christ's kingdom. I don't know if the story is completely true, but here it is as related to a journalist named Stuart Brand by uh, an anthropologist, cultural anthropologist named Gregory Bateson. Despite what the name may suggest, New College is one of Oxford University's oldest. Founded in 1379, at its heart lies a dining hall that features expansive oak beams across its ceiling. About a century ago, an entomologist discovered that the beams were infested with beetles and would need replacing. The college agonized over where they might find oaks of sufficient size and quality to make new beams. Then, as Stuart Brand recounts, one of the junior fellows stuck his neck out and suggested that there might be some worthy oaks on the college lands. Now, these colleges are endowed with pieces of land scattered across the country, which are run by a college forester. So they called in the college forester, who hadn't been near the college itself in many years, and they asked him if there were any oaks for possible use. He pulled his forelock and said, Well, sirs, we was wondering when you'd be asking. Upon further inquiry, it was discovered that when the college was founded, a grove of oaks had been planted to replace the beams in the dining hall when they became beetly, because oak beams always become beetly in the end. This plan had been passed down from one forester to the next for over 500 years, saying, You don't cut them oaks. Them's for the college hall. How far out does your vision reach? Have you bought into the idea that, well, Christ is returning soon, so it really doesn't matter. We're out of here. There's nothing in scripture that teaches that kind of mindset. Instead, we should be developing a long-term vision for the rule of Christ in the world. I believe that means as a church, we should be focused on laying strong foundations. We're not interested in quick growth just for the sake of growth. Rather, we want strong foundations that will support the growth when God gives it. And the same thing's true in our families. Build into your children and grandchildren the most important things, not the things that are current or popular. It's not about whether your children are entertained by the spiritual training you provide at home or in the church. Rather, are they being given strong foundations? And the same thing is true in our culture. 
We shouldn't be looking for quick fixes, whether that's packing the court or compromising on legislation that enshrines what God calls evil. Take the long view. And you can do this because, as God's people, we have the confidence that in the end, Jesus wins. The nations will come to worship him. God absolutely is in control. So his people should be encouraged and confident. Lord, I pray that this message would sink into our hearts and minds, that we would not just know that you're sovereign, but that we would really believe it in a way that makes a difference in how we live. I pray that we would be encouraged by that truth and that we would be confident because of it. Help us to go out from here as people who are sent. You have sent us into this world with a great message. And the results aren't up to us. The results are up to you. You're building your kingdom. You've given us a calling, a commission to carry out our role in that. Help us, because of your sovereignty, to be encouraged and confident in doing what you've called us to do. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.